Okay. Now, on that ending, delete the last line. Check on sound. That's, that sounds pretty hot to me. And I can move around with this one. I'm not going to hurt anybody with the speakers. There it is. Going to go. Okay. So when I'm up here, <clears throat> so if I do the mighty one, God the Lord speaks the summons of the earth, we're good. All right. Last song. Guide my and help me see the way you see. Always Jesus, ever Jesus Christ, in all is Christ in me. Holy Spirit, guide my speaking words of grace and truth abound. Let my lips be filled with stories. The mercy that I found. Bye. 
heavens are holy, sing and praise. The heavens are roaring, praise of your glory. When you are raised to life again, you have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. Powerful name it is, powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, the Powerful name it is, nothing can stand again. What a powerful name it is, the name of Just Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise his mouth, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger brought me with His precious blood. Oh, to bring out great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let Thy goodness, like a better, find my wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. 
Here's my heart, oh, take it, seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Amen. Please be seated. Peter, could you read Psalm 50 for us, please? Psalm 50, the Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its faithfulness, fullness, are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes, or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brothers. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Dennis, stop. Could you pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we give you the praise, the glory, and honor. As our creator, you know each and every one of us. You know every hair on each of our heads. You love us, Lord, in spite of our transgressions and our weaknesses. Lord, you are the mighty majesty. It's hard to say that word sometimes. Being majestic as you are. So thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to this earth. Lived a perfect life, Lord, that we may stand before you because of his sacrifice. His shedding of his blood which covers all of our sins. Lord, we live this life on this earth, struggling each day 
or to be in accordance with your deeds or your decrees and statutes. Yet we fail, and you forgive us because of your love. So thank you for that, Lord. And we give this time to you. We pray for Peter as he reveals your word to us this morning. May your spirit guide him through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And our catechism question for today is catechism question, question number 36. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? We'll say this together. That he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants him irrevocably to all who believe. Our short answer, that he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Our scripture comes from John 14, 16 to 17. Let's say this together as well. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Father of life, draw me closer. Lord, my heart is set on you. Let me run the race of time with your light enfolding mine and let the peace of God, let it reign. Oh, Holy Spirit, Lord, my comfort, strengthen me, hold my head up high, and I stand upon your truth, bringing glory unto you, and let the peace of God, let it reign. Oh, Lord, I hunger for more of you. Rise up within me, let me know your truth. Oh, Holy Spirit, saturate my soul and let the life of God Let your healing power breathe life and make me whole, and let the peace of God let it reign. Oh Lord, I hunger for more of you. Rise up within me, let me know. Saturate my soul and let the life of God fill 
powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The Thank you for having me here this morning for the privilege of sharing with you all. Uh, thank you to Tom and to the elders just for your encouragement and acknowledgement that everybody who, who speaks up here does it uniquely and for modeling Tom the freedom to do that last week. That was really an encouragement to me. Uh, thank you, Peggy, for the pastoral prayer there. You have, you have asked for what, what we desire. So with your, with your permission, we'll jump right in. We have been working through the New City Catechism, and that's a series of 52 questions and answers that express the foundation of what we believe, and we are now two-thirds of the way through that, and I feel obligated as a math teacher in training to recognize, I understand 52 is not divisible by three, but rounded to the nearest catechism question, 
we are two-thirds of the way through. Uh, and in addition, the catechism is split into three parts. So part one we looked at was God, creation, and fall, and the law, and that laid the foundation of our, our spiritual situation. Uh, part two, we had Christ and redemption and grace, and that's what we've just come through when we looked at the fact that we have salvation now by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And last week, we discussed the fact that that faith comes through the Holy Spirit, which was a wonderful initiation into part three, in which we'll look at the Spirit, restoration, and growing in grace. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the church, and eventually resurrection and eternal life. And if you if you want to follow along, actually, there's a there's an app. It's the New City Catechism app. If you have a smartphone, you can pick it up, and it'll you know it just shows you the question. It's super simple. You tap it, and then it brings up the answer, so you can quiz yourself. You can put it in kids mode if you want short answers. You can click for the scripture reference, or you can just scroll through the whole thing to remind yourself of where we've been and where we're going. You're welcome to check that out. Today's question is question 36. And today's question is, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? And the answer that you read with us earlier is three parts. That he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants him irrevocably to all who believe. And we're going to take that answer and we're going to look at those three parts Sort of in order, starting with number one. The first thing that we believe about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, when we say we believe the Holy Spirit is God, in contrast to what? What else might we believe about the Holy Spirit? And it turns out there's kind of two sides of the horse you can fall off on here. One is to say, well, the Holy Spirit is part of God. And that might make sense to us because when we've experienced the Spirit, like I have a spirit, right? I have a body, a mind, and a spirit or a soul, depending on how you parse it. My spirit is part of me, but it is not independent. It is not its own person. That's not the case for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is its own person. And that's the first thing we need to understand when we talk about the Spirit being God, that the Holy Spirit is its own person, his own person. We, we see this in John 14, when Jesus is teaching his disciples shortly before he's crucified. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he talks about him independent of himself, independent of the Father, and he gives the Holy Spirit what we call attributes of personal agency, meaning the Holy Spirit can look at the things he does, teach and remind. It, it has its an initiative and a will. It can be related to the Holy Spirit is his own person. We, we use pronouns for him. We, he's not a part of something. Paul affirms this in Romans 8 when he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And all of these scripture references, by the way, are in the notes in your bulletin if you're, if you're looking to follow along. So, so the Spirit is independent. The Spirit is its own person, and it can remind, and it can intercede, and it can do things that only a person can do. So we, we need not to fall off the side of the horse and say, well, the Spirit's a part of God. The Spirit is its own person. 
Well, now, the other side of the horse we could fall off would be to say, okay, so the Holy Spirit is its own person, but it's kind of like an angel or a messenger, right? Like the angel in Revelation when John bowed down to it and said, oh, don't bow down to me. I'm just a servant like you. Worship God, right? Then maybe the Holy Spirit was just sent, but it's not God himself. Well, Scripture doesn't support that view either. And before we look at our next scripture, I want to give you a quiz. It's a number quiz. Don't worry. It'll be easy. How many names are given under heaven by which men must be saved? Okay. Hey, you passed. Good job. Acts 4, 12, right? There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. One name by which we are saved. And yet, we're going to jump into the middle of the Great Commission here in Matthew 28. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If there is one name given by which we must be saved, how are we baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Well, we've looked at the Father, and we understand that the Father is God, and we just came through part two. And we talked all about Jesus Christ, and we understand that he is God, and the Holy Spirit also is God. You wouldn't baptize someone into the name of the Archangel Michael. That would be blasphemy, right? I mean, that's not the name. But if we're being baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is divine. Peter affirms that as well when he admonishes Ananias. Ananias sold a field, gave the money to the apostles, but only part of it, and said that it was all of it. And Peter, in Acts 5, says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. Who does he lie to in verse 3? The Holy Spirit. Who does he lie to in verse 4? God. How is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit is God. And it's affirmed in Scripture. Jesus elevates the Holy Spirit beyond anything else in scripture when he says in matthew 12 therefore i tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come and there's a whole lot wrapped up in there and i'm not going to talk about it right now for two reasons one it's not today's catechism question and the second is i really don't know okay and there's a lot of awesome commentaries that will tell you, here's what we think, but we really don't know. But here's my point. How does Jesus feel about the Holy Spirit? Way up there, right? It's very elevated. In fact, he uses the word blasphemy. Blasphemy is a lack of reverence for a deity. You can't blaspheme a prophet. You blaspheme the God of the prophet. So if you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the only way that's possible is if the Holy Spirit is God. And that's what scripture teaches. Now, We've seen that the Son is God, and that the Father is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. This is re-emphasized throughout Scripture in the letters that Paul and Peter and the others write. When they speak of God, they often speak in parallel of the three. And this is especially obvious if you understand that in the New Testament, when it says the Lord, that's frequently short for the Lord Jesus Christ. Or when it talks about God, that's frequently a reference to God the Father. So in 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 12, 4 through 6, Paul writes, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So we see all three parts of the Trinity referenced in 1 Corinthians. He does it again in 2 Corinthians. The grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All three reference in parallel because Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. In Ephesians, Paul does this remarkably while emphasizing the unity of what we worship. In Ephesians 4.4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All three reference, even as he's emphasizing the unity, the oneness of what we worship. Uh, Peter does this as well. When he opens his letter, his first letter, to those who are elect, he says in 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And even Jude, that, that little letter that right before Revelations, right? So short, it doesn't even get chapters, just verses. Jude, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Why do the New Testament authors so frequently reference the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together? Because they are all God. And this leads invariably to a discussion about the Trinity. And, and some of you would say, now, Peter, part one, question three, we already talked about the Trinity. And you would tell me that, that you know how many persons are there in God. You would say there are three persons in the one and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. We have already learned this. We do not need to speak of it again. But if you're like me, the Trinity was not really a one-and-done theological point. And it might behoove us to circle back to that with some level of frequency. Uh, and, and in this case, it's exactly on point for our question today, because our question today is what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? So we're going to stop and talk about the Trinity for a moment. And when we say the Trinity, we're using a word that doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. Okay? It never says Trinity. What it says is everything we've just read. Right? There's a series of truths, and these three truths combine to form the theological point we call the Trinity. Here are the three truths. This is, incidentally, according to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology text, Monday Night Men. You should recognize most of the verses we're using here. Right? Yeah, this is not mine. So God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Those are the three truths which put together form this concept that we call the Trinity. God is one being. That one being has three distinct persons. And when we say distinct persons, we mean things with personal agency. It's something that has a will that can relate to other things. And to even within each other, these persons can relate. And yet they are one God, one being with three persons. And it's quite possible that you will wrestle to wrap your mind around this. And, and I would note, this is also probably not the first time you've wrestled with some of the mysteries of God. Uh, the, the drive home from church yesterday, the discussion with my van was, in my van was, that's, uh, that's a little confusing. <laughs> I've, I've heard people say, I have faith, and we just spent an hour saying the Holy Spirit gave it to us. Do I have faith or did the Spirit give me faith? And the answer is yes, right? But we struggle to wrap our minds around that. Or think about the, our choices. How do our choices function under God's sovereignty? How much has been written about that, right? This is a mystery of God that we wrestle with. And I think it's important 
when you're when you're wrestling with the mysteries of God to to look both at the truths within the mystery and also at the wrestling. Because if you spend your whole time trying to understand the truths within the mystery and you are unable to do so, you will likely have a response to that that doesn't lead you to worship of God. If you're just look, trying to figure out the mysteries, that's your only goal, then you might say, well, I couldn't figure this out. I'm supposed to understand. So I'm going to close that in my closet and hope people don't talk about it. And, and I'm going to say I believe when I know in my head I really don't understand. And we have this kind of imposter syndrome we get because we couldn't figure out the mystery. Or, or you try to reconcile the mysteries of God and you say, these two can't be true. If I can't understand it, it isn't. And you walk away from it. And that is not the desired result of wrestling with the mysteries of God. So when we're looking at the mysteries of God, I think it's important, yes, dig in. Do stuff with the theology. But also... Talk about, think about why you're wrestling. Because sometimes, if you can understand the nature of your wrestle, it can bring you peace with the mystery. Even if you don't understand the mystery. Does that make sense? Okay, so I don't know if I can help you understand the nature of the triune God, but I might be able to help you understand why you wrestle with it. And if we can understand the wrestle, it can bring peace with the mystery. So here are two things, and this is, you can apply these across all of your theological struggles. Two things to remember. They both stem from the same truth. The truth is you are not God. And stemming from that truth, because you are not God, number one, you are working with imperfect assumptions that will result in seemingly contradictory conclusions. You are working with imperfect assumptions, and you are going to follow those imperfect assumptions to seemingly contradictory conclusions. And when I say imperfect assumptions, I'm being nice. Sometimes that's you just flat believe dumb stuff. And because you believe dumb stuff, you get dumb conclusions and don't understand. And sometimes it is imperfect. It's just that we don't, we don't have all the pieces, right? We're just reasoning with a part of it, so we don't get all of it, which means our conclusions seem to contradict each other. I will illustrate this with a story from my baking life. I, uh, I have a propensity when I am baking, strong compulsion to produce as few dishes as possible because dishes are work and I don't prefer to create domestic work or to ignore domestic work. So when I'm cooking, I don't like to make dishes. I was very excited when I visited my wife's family early in their marriage, our marriage to discover that they had a designated half cup measure for the flour business. So when you cooked something with flour, you measured the flour with the designated half cup measure that stayed with the flour bin, and you left it there, and you didn't have to wash it every time. And I said, oh, that's happening in our house. I like making less dishes. I have, I have a recipe for baking powder drop biscuits that produces only four dishes and can be mixed up in the time it takes to preheat the oven. Betty Crocker and I worked really hard on it. So, so, so I'm, I make this recipe frequently because it does what I like, which is produce two dishes. So I'm making this baking powder drop biscuit recipe using the newly instituted designated flour cup. And, and it only takes a cup of flour. So, so I get my two scoops of flour in there and my other four ingredients and I'm mixing it up. And, and when I work in the kitchen, there are frequently things under four feet tall running around that I am sometimes distracted, but I can count to two. And when I looked at that batter, I said, this is too wet. There is not enough flour in here. And I was forced to reconcile two contradictory statements. Number one, did I put two scoops of flour in? Or number two, do I need to add another? I could swear I put two in, but I'm looking at this and I'm telling you, I need to add another. Which is it? I can't decide. But Okay, it was just baking. I didn't really wrestle that hard. But, but I had two statements, right? 
and I didn't know which one was true. So I added another scoop, and it came out all right. I just swore I put two scoops of flour in there. The next week, my wife is working in the kitchen. She says to me, what is this third cup measure doing in the flour bin? And it came back, right? When I went to institute that, I had one set of measuring cups. I couldn't afford to take my half cup measuring cup completely out of commission. So I'd put the third cup measuring cup in there and told myself I'd remember. Had I put in two scoops? Did I need to add another? But I had an imperfect assumption. And when you start with an imperfect assumption, you are going to get seemingly contradictory conclusions. Hasn't Dan walked us through this before, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? What good people? Right? I mean, he walks us back to our assumptions, and we see sometimes we just we get ourselves all confused, and we don't need to wrestle with these two things. We need to back up and look at what our assumptions are. In, in math, we do this intentionally. It's called reductio ad absurdum. That's the Latin for you produced the contradiction, therefore you had a false assumption. Like That's what it actually proves, is that there's an assumption somewhere that we missed. So when you're wrestling, just understand, you're working with imperfect assumptions. You are going to get seemingly contradictory conclusions. Here's the second thing we need to remember anytime we're wrestling with the mysteries of God. You are attempting to make sense of an infinite world using the context of your finite experience. And you can fill those blanks in any way you want. You are attempting to make sense of a spiritual world in the context of your physical experience. You are always attempting to make sense of your world in the context of your personal experience because that's how we learn. That's how the human mind works. When you learn someone's name, if it's a name you've heard before, it is more likely you will remember it than if it's a name you've never heard before. Why? Because you have a context and experience for it. My wife had a friend in school. She was from Korea. Her name was Young Me. And when she introduced herself, she would say, I'm Young Me. It's the opposite of old you. Because she knew we, we'd never heard that name before. We were going to have a hard time remembering it, but we knew the word Young and we knew the word Me. And if we could put them together, we could remember it. Because we process life through the context of our experience. Well, it's wonderful when you're experiencing things similar to what you've experienced. It makes it difficult for you to learn something for which you do not have a context. And I will illustrate this with a story from my brother's marriage. He, uh, he married a gal from Kazakhstan, and her English is very good, but sometimes just the cultural differences make communication difficult. And there was a point uh, early in their marriage, I forget if the washer had broken or the dryer had broken or they were just moving. Anyway, they're shopping for appliances to wash their clothes, and, and his wife says, I think I would like to buy a washer dryer. And he says, yes, I'd agree. I think we need to buy a washer and a dryer. And she says, no, I, I think I'd like a washer dryer. Okay, if you're in kids club, you've heard this before. But, but he said, yes, we should definitely have, you know, to wash the clothes and dry the clothes. Yes, we need a washer to wash the clothes. We need a dryer. No, I would. Part of the confusion probably came because it was happening over the phone or via text, but she was eventually able to communicate to them. What she meant was she wanted to buy a box with the door on the front that you open, and you put the clothes in, and you close it, and you push a button, and it runs water in it, and it spins, and it washes the clothes, and when it's done, it drains the water, turns on a fan and a heating element, spins again, and dries the clothes, and you open the front door, and you take your clothes out, and they have been washed and dried. A washer dryer. Yeah, and a, right? Apparently, in crowded European urban areas where the apartments are really small, it's a great space heating, or they're on houseboats, they're low capacity, they're expensive, they didn't get one. But, but my brother and I had a hard time understanding what she was even talking about because in the context of our experience, 
every time I've ever looked at appliances for clothes, there is a washer and it washes the clothes, there is a dryer and it dries the clothes, and I've never experienced anything like that, so I assume it didn't exist. And we get the same issue when we jump into the mystery facade. And one of the evangelical teachers that we did a video series right here in this church with explained to me, I was very thankful, I don't remember his name, that, that every time I've ever met a being, it was also a person. That you are one being and one person. And I met another being who was one person. And I am one being who is one person. And because that's all I've ever experienced, I assume nothing else can exist. Not because there is an inherent contradiction in it, but simply because I've never experienced it. And if I've never experienced it, I'm going to have a hard time understanding it. Now, the good news is that our inability to comprehend the Trinity doesn't actually pose a practical obstacle to our worship. There are people in this room who for decades have worshipped one God who is three persons completely cohesive. Just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's actually a contradiction. But, but you have to watch yourself because you're always going to process your world in the context of your experience. So what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? Number one, first, that he is God. The second thing we believe is that he is co-eternal with the Father and the Son. And we've already talked about his uh, independence from the Father and the Son and the, the nature of the Father and the Son as God. But what does it mean to be co-eternal? That means that the Holy Spirit has been around forever. And this is worth looking at because every passage that we just read about the Holy Spirit comes from the New Testament. When we study the Holy Spirit, we study him in the context of the New Testament because that's the context in which we today relate to him. And it can lead to the misguided belief that the Holy Spirit was kind of like born after Jesus left, maybe, that that's when he showed up, or that he's been locked up somewhere and he finally got to come out. And that is not the case at all. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. I'll put it up here for you. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that's how the Holy Spirit is frequently referred to in the Old Testament as the Spirit of God. And, and note that the Spirit of God is not just present. That word hovering is like brooding. It's the, it's the word for a, like a mother bird. It's the lovingly fluttering. It's an act of personal agency. It was being there. The Holy Spirit is a person unto himself. We see it referenced as well in, indirectly in Genesis 1, 26 and 32 when, when God speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. Behold, man has become like one of us. And, and that us is not the royal we. That is a cultural construct that came along thousands of years later. It's not in the Hebrew at all. That us, we believe, is a reference of the Holy Spirit. It is God or the triune nature of God. It's God communing with himself. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are creating and looking upon their creation. We see the Holy Spirit in Exodus as well. Uh, the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 31, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And in the case of Bezalel, the Spirit of God gave him abilities and intelligences and, and the, the ability to create and craft so that he could make the things that God wanted made for Israel and their worship at this time. But it wasn't just something he had learned how to do. It was an empowering of the Spirit of God on him. Now, the way that the Spirit of God worked on Bezalel was different than it worked on other people on whom God put the Spirit in the Old Testament. Moses, for example, was recognized among the Israelites 
as having the Spirit of God on him, but when the burden of the Israelites became too much for him alone, God wanted them to recognize 70 elders that he had chosen who were going to help Moses bearing that burden. And it says in Numbers 11.25, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So there was a specific use God had for the Holy Spirit that the Israelites recognized in Moses, and he put it on the elders almost as an ordination at the time to show them that God was giving them authority under Moses, but the spirit didn't persist on them the same way it persisted on Moses. It was different, and it was empowering them to prophesy, which was different than what it was doing in Bezalel with his physical abilities to craft things. We think of the passage Psalm referenced last week, right, where the Spirit falls on messengers who were going to say bad things to David, and suddenly they're prophesying, right? I mean that when the Spirit comes on different people, it does it different ways for different durations at different times in the Old Testament. But typically, typically, God has his Spirit on a leader, a Moses or a judge or a prophet or a king who is communicating to them what it is that God wants of them. We see this when Samuel anoints David in 1 Samuel 16. And after Samuel anoints him, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so there was a persistent nature in which the spirit was on David. But the very next verse tells us that he had taken his spirit off of Saul. So so the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament, but it's different than we experience it now. And it's different even among the different people with whom it is active. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet, references the Holy Spirit in the context of Israel in 63. And he says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And again, we see that personal agency. The Holy Spirit is someone you can grieve. It's a person to be related to. And, And it uses the term Holy Spirit. And I think this is what Paul was referencing in Ephesians 4.30 when he said, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Those phrasings are so parallel, and Paul had such a great knowledge of the Old Testament, that I think this is an affirmation by Paul that the spirit that now seals you is the same spirit of God that was active in the Old Testament. But God had a plan. He had a different way that he wanted to do things with us, and he hinted at that in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 is one of my favorite passages. This is God's promise of a new covenant. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God had a plan, and it was not that the law would be here and we would be here looking at it, trying to be holy as God called us to be holy. His plan was to take that truth of his and put it in our hearts. We believe that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Holy Spirit is co-eternal with the Father and the Son, And we also believe that God grants the Holy Spirit irrevocably to all who believe. And Jesus promised this in the verse we read earlier in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That was Jesus' promise to the disciples before he died. After he died, when he came back in Acts chapter 1, he told them in Acts 1, 4 through 8, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He wants them to go, but right now he wants them to stay in Jerusalem because something is coming. The Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to come on them with power in a way that it never has before. And then on the day of Pentecost, it came. And what the nativity was for Jesus Christ, Pentecost was for the Holy Spirit. Just as we are awed by God himself making himself a man and coming down and dwelling here with us, so we have now God himself coming into us in a way that no one has ever experienced before nor could experience because Jesus hadn't done his work. He's done his work. It's Pentecost now, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And nothing was ever the same again after the Spirit came. It just, he blew that whole world and our world wide open. Now, I... That's so encouraging, except that Jesus promised it to the disciples, right? And at Pentecost, it came on the disciples. Was it just for them? No, at the end of that very sermon, right? Peter's just telling them everything God wants them to know, and the Spirit's opening their hearts to it, and they are cut to the quick, and they say, what should we do? At the end of that sermon in Acts 2, Peter says to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just for the disciples. It was for them too. Was it just for them? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It was worldwide God was offering to live in us. That is what we believe about the Holy Spirit, that he was granted to everyone who believes. Now this is this is a game changer because you remember our problem? Like, all the way back. We had that sin thing going on, right? And why did we sin? We sin because the flesh is in us, right? We are fallen people and we can't not sin. And because we have sinned, there was a penalty that came with that. And Jesus sacrificed himself and he took the penalty in the process we call justification so that we can be freed from the penalty of sin. But there's still a flesh, right? There's still a wrestle. The reason we're under penalty is because we were sinning. And the reason we were sinning is because we can't not. And, and now, this process of sanctification, God gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can have not just freedom from the penalty of sin, but freedom from the power of sin. This is that sanctification priest we're working towards, right? We're becoming increasingly more like God. So, so that spirit in us then gives us power over the flesh, 
that we've been warring against. Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit in us then is, is as inseparable as our connection to Christ. We don't just believe that he was granted to all who believe. We believe he was granted irrevocably, which means it cannot be revoked. It will not leave. It is not the Holy Spirit dwelling on people the way we understood it in the Old Testament. This new indwelling of the Holy Spirit is categorically different. And, and since we see here in, in Romans 8 that, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, then we believe the same thing about being separated from the Spirit that we believe about being separated from Christ. And what does Paul tell us at the end of Romans 8, Romans 8, 35? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? At the very end of the whole thing in verse 39, he makes it very clear after a whole long list that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if that is equated with the gift of the Holy Spirit, then nothing will separate us from the new indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We believe this as well because of how Paul describes the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, he tells the people to whom he is writing, in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, of the gospel of salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when the Holy Spirit sealed us, it was given to us as a guarantee. A guarantee is something that you get to keep until the thing promised, in this case, our inheritance comes. It's not a guarantee if you don't get to keep it. So when he says it's a guarantee, he's telling you, you have the Holy Spirit until your inheritance comes. It is given irrevocably. And he affirms that in 2 Corinthians 1, again, referring to the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. That's where that, like our whole understanding of the word guarantee comes from that physical legal term of guarantee that says it cannot be taken away. Well, that's great news. Because, because we have seen through the course of our lives that we do not have power over sin of ourselves. But if we have God living in us and we now understand who God is, then we have power over sin. Now, how does this work, right? What is what, what was God's purpose in granting us the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit help us? And this, I will refer to Paul's point made by his theologian that the mind can learn for as long as the seat can endure, right? So your seats have endured. This question is actually the next catechism question. So you get to come back next week and find out how does the Holy Spirit help us? Our question today that we were looking at was what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? And this is probably an ironic time to point out, I didn't actually address that question. What we looked at today in part was what does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? Because what we believe about the Holy Spirit is reflected in how we live and whether our lives reflect the truths 
to which we give assent. And my prayer for us is that, that we would draw near to and be led by the Holy Spirit in a way that allows God to sanctify us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us. God, for going to amazing lengths. For, for things like us unspeakably small to be seen in a value of, of you that you would take yourself, yourself in the form of your Holy Spirit and come live in us so that we can glorify you, God. What a privilege. But we know, God, that sanctification is a process and we really need your help with this because we're not always, we're not always awed by it, frankly. And I, I just pray that you would Make us alive to, God, open our hearts to what it is that you want to do and how it is that you want to dwell in us. Thank you for your word and your truth and the opportunity to live towards it, to learn about it together in this community. Amen. Came up here so quietly, but I want to say, "Wow!" and "Amen." Let's stand. We're going to sing a new song. Uh oh. This is the new and simple song called "Hymn of the Holy Spirit." Spirit, guide my vision, help me see the way you see. Always Jesus, ever Jesus, Christ in all is Christ in me. Holy Spirit, guide my speaking words of grace and truth of let my lips be filled with stories of the mercy that I found. You're the light. You're my path. You're the shepherd of my soul. All I Shepherd of 